Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going? It's been a slow news week, Amy. It has. Yep. It, it really you, has you not. You can tell when people are on vacation. Yeah, summer, late summer, there's not a lot happening. And that's okay from my vantage point because once the school year starts, things really ramp up, both in my home with the kids and at the seminary. But it does mean that a nice little break for me in that world means slow news week for the podcast. Yes, it does. And because it's a slow news week, folks, we've got a very special guest on with us this week. Miss Mary DeMuth joined us and spoke about her new book, as well as uh, the sexual abuse discussion that's going on around the Southern Baptist Convention. So we've got that interview to play for you here in just a few minutes. Uh, but uh, very thankful for her taking the time out to spend with us and and discuss her story, as well as her role in the SBC and uh, how she's helped her local church, as well as the the convention itself through this discussion over the past six months or so. It was a great conversation. So we'll let's go. We'll go through the news, but then we'll kind of set that up soon uh, because uh, I think it's a real highlight for the week. Before we get to that news, we do want to remind you about the Undergraduate School of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's Boyce College. They exist to prepare men and women for gospel service in areas like biblical studies, business, teaching, ministry, and much more. You can study on campus in Louisville or online. You can learn more about Boyce College at boycecollege.com. Boyce College has basketball. They have, uh, I think, volleyball. I think they, did I see they added soccer as well? They've got like sports. They, they're growing. It's, it's pretty amazing, Amy. Can, it's a lot of good you stuff. Were, you were at Southern back in the early 2000s. Yes. Could you have imagined that they would have like 1,300 to 1,500 students at Boys College now? No, I remember being around for some of the vision conversations about Boyce. You know, it changed names a few times. It was like Boyce Bible College, James P. Boyce College of the Bible, you know, lots of different ways. And then it became Boyce College while we were there. And here's a little piece of trivia. Here's a, an extra, you know, SBC history moment. I don't know if we've discussed this. Do you know who the first student life director for Boyce College was? Keith Whitfield. Keith Whitfield. That's right. I think we have discussed that before on the podcast. I do think that has come up. Yeah, and he has sort of an infamous story, which I will not tell on the podcast, but it is, uh, there, there was kind of an interesting incident. At a at an event, but I'll I'll let him tell that story. Sometime. Oh, that's fantastic! We'll have to get yeah. that story on Throw the podcast before long. Yeah. All right. Well, check out Boys College, boyscollege.com. Amy, we jump into the news at another Baptist college. This time over in Missouri at Southwest Baptist University, where they have been urged to clarify their faith statement after a report from a committee headed by David Dockery. This is a conversation that has been going on for a little while. I think we even covered, did we cover yes, we did. one story about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, d- some discussions with faculty. So they developed an external peer assessment committee and uh, they just completed their work. It was led by David Dockery, Chancellor of Trinity International University, and they evaluated the key elements of Baptist distinctiveness that inform the university's identity as a Missouri Baptist institution. And so because they don't have 
a clearly implemented statement of faith, their doctrinal position has been kind of ambiguous. So the committee completed its review, but that was one of the big takeaways to say, without a clear statement of faith, folks really don't know what they stand for. So then it allows for some of these discussions of people trying to figure it out. Yes. And uh, the president has stated that uh, we are currently working to clarify, boldly articulate, and implement our statement of faith that will further align and strengthen our Baptist identity and Christian faith. So it sounds like they're trying to take steps at Southwest Baptist University to kind of tie the Missouri Baptist Convention and strengthen that relationship between them, as well as to integrate that Baptist statement of faith throughout the university. So uh, we'll keep an eye on this story and see if anything else uh, comes of it. But uh, that is kind of wraps up the review that had been commissioned that David Dockery had led. Down to Georgia, Amy, Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, led by Bryant Wright. We announced here on the podcast that he had announced his impending retirement and, and had asked them to find a, a successor to him. They have called Clay Smith, the pastor at First Baptist Church, Matthews, North Carolina, as the next pastor of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. Clay Smith, he's obviously he's no stranger to North Carolina Baptists, has been very involved at the state convention level. So I have been around him quite a bit just at annual meetings, things like that, and really has stood out as a younger leader who has gotten involved at the state convention level. So that's that's how I know him and have been around. He's on the executive board for the North Carolina Baptists for a little while and uh, just has done a, done a great job there. So this is exciting news for Johnson Ferry. I know the folks in Matthews will be sad to see him go, but everyone in Marietta is very excited. So congratulations to Clay. He'll be preaching in view of a call on August 4th, uh, and a vote will follow that sermon. So congratulations to him. I'll be praying for him in the uh, the possible transition down to Marietta. All right, Amy, the Hoosier One Tour kicks off in just under three weeks over in Fayetteville, North Carolina, right down the road from you in Fayetteville. That's right. right down the road. That That's not nearby. That's I mean, it's quite, like an hour down the road. Yeah. That, that's it's kind it's, of. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of. So right. the Hoosier One Tour led by Johnny Hunt and uh, the North American Mission Board. They'll be kicking that off in August at Temple Baptist Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So we mentioned on the podcast before that instead of having that one big rally, an event in Atlanta, they're doing these events across the country, 70 different events, a couple of different tracks, including this Hoosier One Evangelism Tour. So it's right down the road, Amy. You should go. Yeah, not too far. So I'll have to, to check my calendar. Things are, they get kind of booked up right around that time in August. So yeah. it would be better if it were in Raleigh, but maybe I'll get a chance. Maybe so. Yeah, because uh, that's like either the week before school starts or the week school does start. So, right. Uh, but joining Johnny Hunt at this event will be Jimmy Scroggins, a pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida, Catherine Renfro, a marketing consultant at NAM, Alan Taylor, the director of Sunday School and Church Education Ministries at Lifeway, and Tim Doughty, the senior pastor of Eagles Landing First Baptist Church in McDonough, Georgia. And Charles Billingsley will be leading the worship at this event. So uh, there's a little bit of different lineup at every one of these Hoosier One events. Uh, Johnny Hunt should be at all of them. I think he is kind of the keynote guy for this, and uh, the, the other people will change as it happens. So 
Uh, you may you may get Charles Billingsley one night. You may get somebody else another night. So uh, lead worship. You know, so. I was just talking about Charles Billingsley this week. Actually, uh, me too. Well, how were you talking about him? Well, we were just reminiscing about in, in 2014 when he was the music director for Southern Baptist Annual Meeting. Right. So. Well, big I fan, was by the way, big fan. Yeah, so I was discussing him in a larger conversation about contemporary Christian music. And I, in college, was a really big fan of New Song. And so the the time, now New Song's been around for a really long time, and it's gone through... That's a through Christmas se- shoes, people, isn't it? That's correct. It's gone through several different people, but in the late 90s, which is when I was in college, those were the... Russ Lee and Charles Billingsley years. And it was a uh, People Get Ready was the album. And I wore that CD out and I went to concerts in Asheville and Spartanburg and maybe Greenville and all, just uh, all. I mean, I followed, I followed them right anytime they were in the area. I was at the concert. So, um, so I, I didn't, when I, by the time Charles Billingsley was worship, leader at the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, that was way past the time when I was, you know, listening to him with New Song. So I didn't realize he was in New Song. It, it, he, it was a, I mean, several of the New Song folks, maybe, you know, it's kind of brief. There were a few, Eddie Carswell and um, who helped found it, you know, it's been around since the beginning, but they rotated through some musicians in the band. Huh. But I'll still say, I mean, I know they're known for Christmas shoes, but people get ready. That's the best album. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the news this week. We mentioned it was a light news week, and the Charles Billingsley stuff was free. So you get the little bonus there. But that does bring us to our interview this week with Mary DeMuth. Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. And uh, we're we're just really excited to have you. We're excited about the book that is coming out and think it can be a real help to the church at large. Uh, but obviously to, you know, with our audience uh, being people in Southern Baptist churches, we know this is a topic we're talking about a lot. Um, now, you went to your first Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting this year. Uh, is that correct? That's correct. And I was a messenger and my, my, I go to a very large Southern Baptist church in the South in the Texas. And, uh, we haven't sent someone for a really long time. So it's kind of fun to be like the representative of Lake Point Church in Rockwell, Texas. It was really fun. Well, you need to tell Josh Howerton that he needs to be there. He needs to step up and yeah. come for sure. Yes. I'll tell him. <laughs> what were your impressions, particularly this year, as we were addressing the issue of sexual abuse? I think we've, de- we've dealt with it some in the past. We've had some resolutions, but this year we spent a lot of time dealing with it and taking some actions that we hope are first steps. What were your impressions coming into that? Yeah, my my fear going in was obviously the fear of not knowing what to expect because it's a big, large convention. And, um, you know, I'd heard that, that things were going to be talked about in terms of sexual abuse and how the church can respond redemptively to that. And, and I was, I was very, um, heartened by the response and I felt extremely listened to and, um, especially within the meetings and just the verbiage, there was no, there was no um, backpedaling, which is what we've been kind of seeing in churches over the years, uh, whether it be Catholic or Protestant, this kind of, well, you know, this is the structure or, oh, this is, yes, these are isolated incidents or none of that. It was all owned and um, and there was a great amount of grief and remorse and repentance and 
a huge spotlight on the issue, which made me excessively happy because I feel like it's been in the darkness for far too long. So I, I walked away from it very encouraged. I know there's a lot of work to do, of course. This is a kind of a minefield of beginnings, but um, I'm grateful that the SBC responded the way they did without pretense and with with definitely kind of, I would say, a learner's posture, which was really great for me just to see that and see it demonstrated. Now, you mentioned you felt listened to. From a survivor standpoint, that that is one of the things that we hear a lot from, not just from you, from others, that they they don't often feel listened to. So for the pastors, maybe church leaders listening at home, how can they better listen to survivors? Like, I mean, that that's something that we've struggled with as a denomination and in the local church. How do we do better at that? Yeah, in fact, uh, I was privileged to have J.D. Greer write the, the foreword to the book. And the primary thing that he wrote in there was, this is a book about listening. And, and so really what it comes down to is placing yourself, like Atticus Finch said, to put yourself in the shoes of others and to really halt your words and um, resist the temptation to prescribe solutions or to force forgiveness in your timetable or to throw some Christian platitude scriptures to people. And I, I love the scripture. I read it all the time. But sometimes it can be wielded as a weapon. And so in my thought, it's more about listening and asking clarifying questions, being sensitive to the body language of the person. Don't be so nosy about questions that you're pushing them over the edge. But uh, to say, hey, if, if I'm asking you something that you don't want to answer, then feel free not to answer. I just want to be able to hear your story and walk alongside you. And if there's anything that I've done that has hurt you, please let me know. I, I just want to learn how to be a better friend to you. Uh, those are the kind of, you know, setups that we do in a conversation that help people to kind of, you know, say, okay, this is a safe person. I can, I can talk to them. So one of the things that we have talked a lot about is uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention has been prevention, all of the you know background checks, all of these things to try and keep it from happening. Uh, the reality is that this is a two-sided issue. It's also about care on the backside. Um, and one thing that we've seen on this podcast we've observed is that if we move toward a sort of a culture change where everyone begins to report, to begin to handle these things, we're going we're gonna to actually, from a public sense, see more, not less, because that because we will actually be hearing about them and and justice will be um, hopefully taking place but as that happens that's really difficult that's people have a hard time knowing what to do um, kind of following up on the question that Jonathan just asked practically if someone that's works in a church or even just someone that's in a volunteer ministry position has someone to come to them what would you say are the first few things they need to do if someone says, I've been abused? Well, because disclosure is so hard and it's very rare to have a false allegation, the first three words you should say are, I believe you. 
And those are really powerful words. Um, if the person that, that has told you what has happened is a minor, you have a mandatory, um, you should report uh, that abuse because if they are a minor, we know we're dealing with a, the type of crime where a mandatory uh, reporter should report. In the case of an adult reporting to you of, of something, you can, of course, start with the I believe you. I'm so sorry. I'm how can I pray for you? How can I walk alongside you? And at that point, it's it's a it's a matter of pointing them to resources. Uh, I have a whole list of extensive resources at we2.org forward slash resources. Um, and every church should have some sort of, and this is part of the you know prevention process as well as the as well as the proactive process. They should have some sort of uh, labyrinth or uh, listing of here's, you know, if thens, if they're here, then go here, or we have a counseling center, or here's some trauma informed therapists we've worked with in the past, or uh, here's the, in the case of a child, here's uh, the local children's advocacy center, which are so great and so important in the work that we do. So, uh, yeah, always there should be a response. And uh, when the person is an adult, they, they get to choose how they respond to the crime that's committed against them. And, um, you know, of course, we would encourage if they feel like they want to, I would encourage them to definitely pursue justice. But it also is a really hard situation. We recently saw that with the Elder Holt case where I was actually in the courtroom when uh, Anne-Marie Miller was reading her statement. It was excruciating. But was, what was more excruciating for me was hearing the 30 days in jail and a $4,000 fine. Like it's, it's very common for nothing to happen. And uh, more likely than not, that will happen. And so it is the, the road before someone who decides to pursue legal justice, it won't be easy. And they will need some amazing friends walking alongside them and, and a church that loves them well. You mentioned advocacy and, and kind of that kind of sums up what you just talked about, the church that, that walks alongside them. How do we better become advocates for those who have been abused and create a culture where we accept them, we love them, and we, we walk alongside them. One of the things that Boz Chavijan said um, when he was prosecuting these kinds of cases that has always stuck with me is that he would be on the side of the one who was a survivor or the victim in the courtroom, and there would be a smattering of their family members. But on the right-hand side, if the person who perpetrated was someone from a church, the whole uh, right-hand side of the church would be full of, or right-hand side of the court would be full of churchgoers supporting that perpetrator. And I would just like to see that reverse. Not that we shouldn't stand behind, you know, people who are going through the justice system, but I would like to see the church become the the people who stay on the left-hand side there, who support those who have been victimized and who have been harmed. And so that's one really simple way. You see that with, um, there's a, a group of motorcyclists who do that, right? They uh, go in and, and they, they stand behind a sexual abuse survivor in the courtroom when no one else is there. Let's talk about the book. The book's called We Too, and it's set to release, what's, what's the release date? August 13th. Okay, it's set to release August 13th. And this was written, um, to tell us about who this was written for. It's on how the church can respond redemptively. Yes. Yeah, so it's got a twofold audience. The, the first tier of audience is anyone who considers themselves a leader in the church. Um, the second tier would be anyone who wants to walk alongside someone who's suffering in this way. 
And then I would say the the tertiary layer underneath that, it and what I'm finding surprisingly to be the people who are most affected by it are survivors who finally feel like someone is saying stuff that they've been longing to say or been wanting to say or been trying to say for years to kind of an empty room. And so there's this kind of building up of here are the words that we can use to try to help people understand what we're going through. So there's three different audiences. And I wrote it because I love the church. I flat out love the church. And I, as a sexual abuse survivor myself, um, multiple rapes as a five-year-old, I didn't know Christ until I was 15. I met him through Young Life. And at that point, I began my healing journey. And it was Christ followers who who listened to me, who cried with me, who prayed for me. And the lion's share of my healing has come because Christians have loved me well. Writing this book was really more of my gratitude for those people who just dared to love me well. And these were Christ followers who prayed me toward health. And and so this, this book is my love letter to the church, encouraging her to do better, to do well, to be like those folks, to listen, to pray, to um, to cry alongside, to weep with those who weep. And um, so that's really why I wrote We Too. You bring up a, a particular category and you're talking about kind of bearing one another's burdens. And this is something I think I've learned in the last year, year and a half. A lot of times we've thought of different groups of people that help in in situations like this, that help survivors. There's a pastoral staff. We also think about counselors. We think about attorneys, social workers, advocates, lots of different. Um, but there's something really unique about being a friend to mm-hmm. someone who is walking through this. Um, and really the reality that it a lot of times being a friend to a survivor is about just listening, just sitting with them. And um, I think sometimes we we have been looking for, okay, what category, what do I need to say here? Um, what words of encouragement, because what words of encouragement can you give people? And then maybe even that the book sort of lays this out, because uh, you have a lot of folks that may not feel equipped, but the reality is being a friend sometimes it's just that, like there's not a lot of training that has to go for that. Exactly. And there, there is so much, I think we, like you said, we look at it as a structure and we look at, okay, let's look at the church and how it can do better. And we forget about the worldwide body of Christ that is built on believers, people who believe in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the tide of this issue changed. And we're going to see people healed in the grassroots level of one-on-one discipleship. This book is about discipleship. This is about how do you love people in those spaces and how do you uh, help folks? How do you understand the dynamics of abuse? Where can you go in the Bible to find out about exploitation, which there are many parts of the Bible that has that available to you. Um, how do you look at Jesus Christ and how he listened and, and dignified people who had been through extremely broken situations and circumstances? And I believe we can start a resurgence uh, and a revival, if you will, in on that particular one-on-one level. And so, yeah, we talk about the church and, you know, the big C church and this big kind of conglomeration, but you are the church. We are the church. And as we love our friends... And as we listen better, that's where things change. Now, we've talked about how the church can respond well, how your book is really about discipleship. It's about people growing in the church. It's about people growing more like Christ. And 
advocating for those who've been abused. And one of the things that I've seen over the last year, where we've had a lot of these discussions about sexual abuse in the church, the conversation always changes when you have a room full of people who really have not dealt with this or, or lived this out versus having people in the room who have experienced abuse, who have survived, who are caring for those who are advocates. Can you talk about just finally the, the importance of having people in the room when these discussions are going on who either are survivors or advocates versus, you know, kind of some of the pitfalls that we fall into when it's people who don't really have a firsthand or secondhand even uh, experience with this? Yeah, we don't want it to become a vacuous or clinical issue where we as, you know, the intelligentsia are sitting behind <laughs> Uh, you know, a closed door trying to figure out an issue that we haven't heard stories about. And I believe stories have power. And my own story I know has power because I've been able to tell people about the redemption that has happened to one of the most egregious things that can happen to a human soul. And so one of the things that I encourage pastors to do when uh, they ask me, well, what's one thing I can do? Something practical. I will just simply say, have a survivor with a redemptive story and it, of course, it's not ne necessarily neatly tied up because whose story is neatly tied up this side of eternity. But to have a survivor with a redemptive story share their story from the front. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in churches where I have felt like I was the only human being in the world with that problem, even though intellectually I knew the statistics because it was never talked about from the front. I assumed everyone else was fine and I was the only one struggling. And so to welcome survivor stories into your midst will give you the kind of empathy that you need, even if you've never experienced it yourself, to be able to tread a little more kindly and sweetly uh, in this very particular difficult issue. Now, I know that it's a risk to put a survivor story from the front because you're going to get a wave of people who finally are like, oh, I can finally tell my story. This is a safe place. Who do I talk to? But I believe that if you love your church and you're a shepherd of your church, you're going to want your sheep and the people in your congregation to be whole and healthy. And the more whole and healthy they are, the more they're going to reach out to others. And it's going to be this beautiful, dynamic explosion of revival that happens when you dare to talk about some of these difficult issues from the front. Well, I think that's a great way to, to wrap this up because that was just beautiful the way you explained that. Um, I love that you said this book is about discipleship. I just think that's really strong to, to understand this is about building up the body of Christ. And as you pointed to statistics that there it, you, we can't assume that it has not happened in our midst. We can't assume that there are not people in our midst who have faced this. And uh, so this really is about building up the body of Christ to be uh, what, what we were made to be. Um, so thank you very much for talking with us. The book is We Too. We'll drop a link in the show notes. And uh, we're, we're grateful for this gift to the church. Thank you. That's my heart for sure. <laughs> Jonathan, that was one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done. First, because I just have such respect for Mary and her courage and then how she has become an advocate for survivors everywhere. And I just I just think what she is doing 
is so incredible. I'm really excited about this book. Absolutely, Amy. And that's going to bring us to my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. All right. So we're going to go to 1969 simply because everyone's been talking about 1969 this week. Because Woodstock. it was 50. No. Oh. It was 50 years ago that we experienced landing on the moon, Apollo 11. So actually, um, hats off. It was Allison Young that reached out and said, you got to talk about this. And so I went digging. And I thought there's, there's got to be something in here about how Southern Baptists took in landing on the moon. And I found something. So this is actually an issue of Baptist Press from July 22nd, but it's telling the story from before. And it said that there were more than 1,000 people attending the training union and youth conference at Ridgecrest. They, they were there same time moon landings happening. People all over the world are watching this. Most of them saw it via closed circuit television, but a lot of them had a tough time finding a television set. So it's interesting because a lot of folks pointed out that it said millions around the world stayed close to their televisions watching the historic feat. So I'm going to guess travel was really down, was really low that week because people wanted to stay home to be able to watch on TV. And so the guests had to figure out what to do to find a TV because the rooms at Ridgecrest, even now, don't have TVs. I mean, they have TVs around the place, but not in all the bedrooms. So it said that some guests rented a motel room through the night, uh, rented a motel room for the night. So they left Ridgecrest, rented motel rooms just to have the TVs in them to watch the moonwalk. They also said there were um, moon watching parties. And so they were held throughout the assembly, but not all of them could be accommodated. I guess, you know, probably lack of TVs. But then they also said there were closed circuit televisions that had been used for Bible teaching and a program called Tune In featuring discussions of contemporary issues. So they had these closed circuit TVs they'd been using and they turned them on, flipped them over so that people could watch man landing on the moon. So this was an important, important week in history uh, for America, but also they were talking about man landing on the moon and Southern Baptists, part of the training union and youth conference at Ridgecrest, were watching it together all this week in SBC history. All right. Now, you said this was a youth conference or youth leaders? It said training union and youth conference. And it okay. said they were, the, it said the closed circuit TVs were for the intermediate section of the youth conference. For Bible teaching. So you think it so was kids? It's probably both. It was kids and leaders, probably. Okay. So it's entirely possible because kids and, you know, if you'd have been a youth in 1969, that means you'd be about 65 now. Right. 62, 65, 67, somewhere in that range. Do you think any of those people may be listening or their kids may be listening to us? They might. That'd be really If you're cool. out there, if you're out there and you watch the moon landing or know someone who watched the moon landing from Ridgecrest, you got to let us know. Yes. That'd be kind of yeah. cool. Or if they were one yes. of the ones that rented a hotel room just to get away for the night to be able to watch the moon landing. So yes. that'd be kind of cool. Yes. 
Very All right. Cool. Well, that's going to bring us to our resources of the week. Amy, I think your resource of the week is not going to be a surprise because I think it's related to our interview. So it is? Yes, very much. So we too, actually, as a pre-order, was a resource of the week that I had quite a while back. But there are some deals that are kind of connected with it. So this book is being published by Harvest House. And if you go to Harvest House Publishers, um, you can actually get a 60% discount on 10 or more copies. And for every 10 copies ordered, you get one copy free. Uh, so there's a phone number and an email address that they put out on the flyer. So I'm going to send. So we'll put that in the show notes. Also, if you pre-order by August 12th, you can get other Mary DeMuth books for free. She has five books that are there and available for free, as well as um, you can participate in a free email that's 21 Days to Healing. So it's through we2.org slash 12 days. So just a lot of opportunities involving this book release that I think is going to be a real gift to the church. Uh, it's it's going to be important to all of us. All right. My resource of the week is a new short film, kind of, from the ERLC about North Korea. So it's called Humanity Denied. It's a 10-minute film on religious freedom in North Korea. They had an event this week up in D.C., uh, to coincide with the release of that. So I am putting a link to that information in the show notes. Check that out over at erlc.com slash North Korea. Uh, just a, a good little resource there just to kind of get some explanation on what's going on over in North Korea as it relates to religious freedom. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week, Amy. Uh, you know, we got a couple of weeks left of summer before uh, things get kicked off at the seminary as well as the Hoosier One Tour. Don't forget about that. We talked about that in the show today. Be sure to check out uh, that information over at send2020.com and you can find out where the closest Hoosier One Tour date is to you and your church and uh, take some people over there and check it out. So uh, that's the Hoosier One Tour from the North American Mission Board. Be sure to check that out and we'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week.